Welcome to the Good Shepherd New York podcast. Good Shepherd New York is a community helping New Yorkers embody the love of Christ for the good of our neighbors. For more information, go to goodshepherdnewyork.com. May you be filled with curiosity, grace, and peace as we listen and learn together through this sacred text. And now, a reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, he said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning. My name is Michael Redzina. I'm one of the pastors of Good Shepherd New York. And now that we've read our gospel text, we take a moment to reflect on that text. And part of reflecting is paying attention, showing up. And so right now, I invite you into a moment, or a practice, I should say, of showing up. As best as you know how, bring your authentic self to this moment, whatever that may be. Maybe it's a lot of faith or doubt. Maybe it's a lot of joy or sorrow. Could be clarity or confusion. Just whatever it is, bring your authentic self And let's open ourselves to the possibility that God can take this story and connect it to ours in a way that transforms us in the way of love. So right now, as best as you know how, a quiet moment to open up. God of love, transform us in the way of love through this story, we pray. Amen. Well, Mark is setting up a pattern for us. He's kind of a tease. He will grease the wheels for giant expectations by using prophetic and apocalyptic language, only to let it fizzle into normalcy once again. But each time this happens, Mark is showing us that the massive inbreaking of a new state of affairs for the world, it takes place one ordinary moment at a time. The larger-than-life transformation that God is enacting can only happen if our relationship with the everyday mundane stuff of life is reoriented. This story of Jesus calling the first disciples is like that. We've just had this apocalyptic and prophetic story of Jesus in the desert, where time seems to slow down. Jesus is baptized by his forerunner John. The heavens are torn open. A divine voice pierces his ears. God's spirit descends on him like a dove. It may as well be the end of the world. And then, the next thing we know, he is strolling along the seaside, striking up conversations with fishermen. Now, as we spend quite a bit of time in the Gospel of Mark this year, I hope that we can let the Gospel reorient us like that. I hope we can go on the ride, so to speak, that we can let it sweep us up above the clouds to see the dazzling new realities, the powerful symbols of God's activity, and then descend once again to the ordinary world with new eyes to see and to pay attention. 
Life has the same cadence, I believe. I think of cultural moments that seem larger than life. We've just experienced three. The turning of a new year, a deeply troubling and symbolic attack on the Capitol, and the inauguration of a new president of the United States. Each moment is supercharged with meaning and expectation and often draws out of us a visceral reaction. But then the next day comes. It's time to get these kids ready for school. It's time to do the laundry or order the groceries. It's time to get that report finished or to make the phone call to a family member. Life goes on. The world keeps spinning. And Jesus approaches two fishermen in this world that continues to spin after his baptism where it seemed the world stopped on its axis. And he sees them casting nets into the sea and he makes an invitation. He says, come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of people. Now let me point out a few things. First, this feels abrupt. If a total rando walks into your office at your hedge fund and says, hey you, come, follow me, I'll change your job description from a manipulator of markets to a manipulator of people, you'd have what I like to call a double what reaction. First, what? Follow you? Who are you? I don't know you. And would someone please call security? Second, what? A manipulator of markets? Are you judging me right now? Are you from the SEC? What are you talking about? And by the way, you're saying this like it's a good thing, right? Manipulator of people doesn't exactly sound like a good thing to me. Now, this story may feel abrupt, like a rando walking up to a stranger asking her to make a radical decision, but this is, again, how Mark speeds up and slows down time. He folds the accordion of time, so to speak, so that we only see a few bullet points. But if you were to stretch it out, you'd find tons of context and filler. It would be like someone saying Michael was walking around his Dallas neighborhood on a winter day and felt called to move to New York. He sold his cars and two-thirds of his possessions and moved to Tribeca. Now, all those statements are true, but so much happened in between. No. See, Jesus got to know them first. This didn't all happen in a day. There was time for a sense of attachment and eagerness to build in the disciples before they left their nets to follow him. Second, the image that Jesus uses here, fishers of people, it's seemingly drawn out of thin air as a sort of casual analogy as he watches or puts in motion what he watches Peter and Andrew casting their nets. It's one of the most misunderstood images in Christian history. I've heard this phrase, fishers of people, as an evangelistic invitational text. It was used kind of like this. If you maybe convinced a child growing up in church to become a Christian, well, that was like catching a little fish in a pond that maybe you stocked yourself. If you were able to convince someone out there who was really bad to become a Christian, well, that was like the equivalent of catching a great white from the sea. It was seen as a positive metaphor, at least from the perspective of the one doing the fishing. But take a look at this image, and I want you to sit with it for a minute. How happy do these fish seem here? We were just told that Jesus came proclaiming good news. The disciples are so compelled by the goodness of this news and the gravitas of Jesus that they leave everything to follow him. If you asked me to create a metaphor for the story so far, roping in fish against their will to their eventual death and sale, 
isn't exactly the first metaphor that would come to mind. But Jesus uses it here. Why? He's drawing on a great prophetic image. Remember what prophets do? They don't forecast who will win the next election to pander to their base. They are truth-tellers in a corrupt world. They are visionaries in a world turned blind. They have a special sensitivity to the happenings of injustice. And also they have a fierce desire to see that wrong put right. They shake things up. They rock the boat. They rarely mince words. They are artistic provocateurs. The prophet Jeremiah is faced with a people who say they worship God. They would be called today good Christians, but they were corrupt. They didn't really worship the God of love. They didn't make that God the centerpiece, the North Star of their actual lives. Instead, they made other things more important. They took good things and made them ultimate. That's what the prophets called idolatry. And when that happens, there is always collateral damage. Why? Because when something rises to ultimate importance, you will do whatever it takes to secure it or protect it. This always meant bad news, especially for the poor and vulnerable in society. Jeremiah sees it and doesn't like it. Not only does he see that it exists, but he sees that it's spreading out beyond their land, out there, out of control, threatening every nook and cranny. So he takes on the divine voice in chapter 16, verse 16. He tells us how God is going to respond. Behold, I will send for many fishers, says the Lord, and they shall fish for them. And after, I will send many hunters, and they shall hunt for them on every mountain, from every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. See, this is an image of confrontation naming that something is off, something is corrupt. It's an image of illumination, bringing something into the light to be seen that wants to be out there, hidden in the shadows. People say, well, that's a bummer. I thought this was an image of salvation, and here we are being told it's an image of judgment. But that's to miss the point entirely. In the Bible, especially in the New Testament, judgment and salvation are seen as the same thing. It's so important, I can't emphasize this enough, in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, judgment and salvation are often seen as the same thing. Judgment is seen as an act of purification, hence the frequent use of images like water and fire to speak of it. The invitation is a compelling confrontation. It points out barriers that get in the way of love. This happens with the disciples. Jesus has good news on his lips, good news of a kingdom that will heal the lame, give sight to the blind, set the prisoner free, set the poor on new ground. Who wouldn't want to be a part of a campaign like that? But immediately, Jesus will begin to take the disciples on a journey of inner confrontation. What is in the way of each of them, for each of them, to see this beautiful, liberating, and reconciling vision become a reality. Painful lessons await. The light of judgment with truth will shine on their corruption from time to time. The cost of their commitment will come knocking, and they won't only ignore it, but they'll go running. But when they're found and restored, they take a step of growth. 
Jesus, in becoming a fisher of his disciples, confronts, yes, illuminates tough stuff, yes, but it has a purifying effect. The dross of their lives melts away little by little so that the precious metal underneath can shine forth. Paul uses a different metaphor to make the same point. He says in 1 Corinthians, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though as one escaping through the flames. See, the judgment and salvation are joined at the hip. We all want salvation, but are we willing to undergo the purifying? the melting away of all that keeps us from love. As disciples of Jesus, we are called to invite others into that journey because we're going through it ourselves. It's a good word for we who are shaped by what some have called slacktivism, thinking that because we have a, uh, or like a vision of something that's just or something that's true, or because we retweet it or give it prominence in our Insta stories, that we've done our part. It's funny that the more intense and symbolic the moment like we've just been through uh, becomes, the more tempting it is to do. But this image of being fishers of people is a warning away from virtue signaling and instead to be about it on the ground. To keep, I want you to keep retweeting the MLK quotes, but make sure that you're purifying yourself of the pride and the supremacy that makes racial injustice possible. Keep reposting the pithy stats and the science around climate change, but make sure that you're taking steps down the difficult path of conservation and taking stock of your own personal commitments on the matter. Keep posting those Bernie memes. And well, well, actually, I don't have a but here. Just keep posting them. I love those things. But we get the point, right? right? The vision of the good and the new world that Jesus paints for us. It breaks into our new world, into our world, one mundane decision at a time, with all the ups and downs, pains and joys, ambiguities and breakthroughs that come with it. Can we transition from vision to reality? Mark transitions from Jesus' apocalyptic experience of God's love in the waters of baptism to an invitation for fishermen to follow him. Love isn't left in the clouds or in our hearts. It's meant to get to work. As we read in 1 John 3, verse 18, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. God's love has broken through, but it will have to melt away all of the violence, the idolatry, the greed, the prideful supremacies, the insecurities, the fear that binds, and the deals that blind. There's a cleansing, a purification that needs to take place, and it happens one moment at a time. This isn't quick for Jesus or the disciples. The story that Mark tells will be of how Jesus becomes a fisher of his disciples. They are drawn up face to face 
but the one in whom we see God's love and in whom we see and know God's wisdom. They will love it and hate it. They will get it and then forget it. Commit and then back out. It's a journey of three steps forward and two steps back. Until the end, where Mark will leave us hanging, wondering, how do we join in? May God give us courage to be purified by God's love, to show God's love. May God give us that cooperating spirit we see in the disciples who leave their nets to follow him. May God keep us from the sanctimony that follows those decisions of resolve, knowing that we will stumble and fall, that we will get caught eating crow ourselves from time to time. May God give us the encouragement to know that all the trying and failing starting and stopping and starting again, they are the labor pains, not only of our own new birth, but the birth of the new world that Jesus called the kingdom of God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Good Shepherd New York podcast. Good Shepherd New York is an interdenominational church centered around the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Our church is theologically rooted in the Apostles and Nicene creeds, but we welcome people of any or no religious backgrounds to participate in our community. If you would like to support us, please text Good Shepherd NY, all lowercase with no spaces, to 77977. That's Good Shepherd NY to 77977. Or visit our website, goodshepherdnewyork.com. Thank you for listening.